Hi, Mike. Hello, Julia. How are you? I'm good, thank you. No, 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 no. Who are you? Well, I'm Mike. Yeah, but who's Mike? You see, I got to thinking the other day, or maybe you got to thinking and asked me the same question. We've been interviewing all these people over the last couple of years, and we've really got to know the nitty-gritty of their lives. Mm -hmm. And I've known you for, what, is it 25 years now? Probably. Well, I know more about these guys than I know about you. Ah. I think. (laughs) I want to know what makes Mike tick and what makes him talk. So what makes Mike tick tock? Oh, I don't know. Is it is it the wind up piece on the back? It could be. Yeah, if, I, tu- be. if I turn around, there's a big key right in the middle of my back. And you have to you have to wind it round, and then I go tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton, and my name is Julian Hope. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. Has your life always run clockwork, though? No. No. <laughs> so so he, he, here you are in 2022, mm-hmm. the founder and managing director of Thames Medical, mm-hmm. the inventor of, ah, but we'll discuss all that later. <laughs> is, is that what you what you told your, your mummy you'd do when you were sitting on her knee? She was feeding your fish fingers and chips. Oh, now you're asking. You said, oh, what I really want to do is... Blank, blank, blank. What I really want to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> so what, what did you really want to do? And are you doing it? No, I'm not. And it's been a sort of form of regret for many, many years um, until I was at a centenary dinner sitting next to two incredible gentlemen, uh, one of whom was a pastor, the other one was a lord, and um, they were asking me about my role and why I was one of only two civilians at this particular centenary dinner um, for 41 Squadron RAF. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Did you? Yes. Wow, I can't think of any other young child who wanted to be that. (laughs) (laughs) I I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And um, at age 17, uh, I went off down to Biggin Hill Mm -hmm. um, to be part of the pilot or the air crew selection procedure. So for for people listening from from foreign places, (laughs) Biggin Hill is, is the place to go, really, isn't it? It's the place we all associate as we do live in the south of England here, we all associate with the daring do's of those wonderful men in their flying machines. Yes. Because Biggin Hill was one of the main uh, sites as a, as a World War II airport. And um, right. and for many years was the site for, for training for, uh, for the right. Air Force. And so you would apply, you'd go through a series of interviews and tests and be accepted for air crew selection. Mm-hmm. And you and I have no idea how many, 200, 250 young hopefuls, not all young, not all 17, you know, some, some were more mature than I, would go down there and you would be put through a sequence of aptitude tests, mm-hmm. physical tests, medicals, intelligence tests. I, I did. I passed those. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. That surprised my mother as well. Um, 
and you you'd go back to you go back to the barracks um have lunch you go back to the barracks in the evening and half the barrack yeah. room would be empty and the next day you go back to your barracks and you'd be notified that tomorrow you'd be moving to barrack room number 1 because by that point there were only six of you left and oh, basically right. they they whittled you down day after day after day after day and if you weren't measuring up you didn't get to do the next test on the on the list <laughs> the last day i i failed the final interview now you say failed mm. final interview did you fail because is it if you get to the, the final day of selection mm-hmm. and you've beaten all those other people mm-hmm. i wouldn't call that failing you 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 didn't make the proportion of people that they needed on that particular day in, in my role as a historian for 41 Squadron, and I'm not the main historian, that's a colleague of mine, a guy called Steve Brew. Um, but in my, my dealings with the RAF, I've asked a number of pilots this question, and it turns out that nobody passes selection board on their first attempt. Nobody. Right. What they want you to do is they want you to be an Air Force pilot more than anything else in the world and have the oomph and the drive to reapply, go back six months later, go through the whole process again, and then you start getting selected for officer um, flight air crew training. And um, unfortunately for a, a young captain of the rugby team, um, deputy head boy, prefect, head of house, that was probably the first rejection that I'd ever come across. Yeah. Yeah, and so it was and, the toughest, wasn't it? Well, it probably was, but my attitude was, well, if I'm not good enough for a short service commission, oh, because I, I didn't just want to be a fighter pilot. I wanted to be on a short service commission, so I'd only have to serve five years. <laughs> so you wanted them to invest a heap of money yeah. for five years, so you'd have your jollies, yeah. and then go off into the world and do something else you really wanted to do. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not judging. I'm not no, no, quite naive. Quite naive. Quite an arrogant, quite an arrogant young grammar school boy upstart who, yeah. And uh, of course, I passed all the tests. I'd done the hard work. Mm. I probably only had to turn up and do them again. And that would have changed the course of my life considerably. But, but at 41 Centenary Dinner, mm-hmm. the pastor drew this story out of me. And he said, something tells me from talking to you and having met you this evening that you've touched far more lives than you would have done if you'd been cocooned in the family that you see around you tonight. And I thought that was a very nice thing to say, a very diplomatic thing. And and, and probably quite true. Possibly. possibly. I've never heard a pass as a lie. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, so that that was what I told my mummy I wanted to do. So yeah, I, I was I set out to be a fighter pilot. Wow! So you never got to go really really fast then? Uh, not in a jet fighter. No, I have not been really fast in a jet fighter. Oh, hold on, that tends to suggest you've been fast in, in other things. Let's 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 get to those in a moment. So you didn't okay. become a jet a jet fighter pilot. Yeah. Uh, what did you do? The next bright idea was to study brewing at Heriot-Watt University. 
you can study brewing at whatever university you go to. You don't need to <laughs> no, go no, to no, no, that's drinking, Julian. That's drinking. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm looking at the finished product. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, the uh, but, but I didn't get the grades. You can get the grades. No. You need high grades to become a brewer, do you? I, I think I think they were looking for something like two A's and a B. Well, no, I, I didn't get that. So, um, so I ended up. Um, Sheffield offered me an interview, mm-hmm. which stunned me because this I was going through clearing, and uh, Sheffield offered me an interview, which I thought was rather intriguing. So I went up to Sheffield and had this interview, and they offered me a, a place studying applied biology. So that's what I went on to study. Ah, applied biology. Yeah, yeah. Now well, that's quite uh, that's quite close to brewing. It, it is. I was going to say you can apply biology to most things. So uh, I've, I've applied biology to, to brewing before. I've applied biology to, uh, to, to, to growing beans in the garden. Mm-hmm. Anatomy, uh, physiology. Yeah, yeah. And actually applied biology is pretty much a, a coverall, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. means that you're doing more experiments. I was going to say, it's so a very, it was a very practical course. Mm. Very practical. Um I mean, obviously, the downside was that you you sort of share halls and, and rooms and your friends are doing English or art. Mm. And they have like two lectures a week. But like you, with, with your studies, we had to be in at sort of 8.30 Monday morning until the experiments <laughs> finished on a Monday, on a Friday afternoon. You know, so uh, very little free time apart from the Wednesday afternoons. Yeah. Oh, good old Wednesday afternoons for sport. Mm. Yeah, mm. that was it. So yeah, so I, I studied applied biology. What were you hoping to do afterwards? Do you have any? I had no idea. Studies, no so idea. That sounds fun. I, I didn't. Had you enjoyed biology at school? Uh, I had um, biology was one of my subjects, but partly because of the biology master. He was mm. a, a very dynamic and positive Welshman. Who used to play hooker for Birmingham Rugby Club? Ah, there's a common thread here, isn't there? What's that? Rugby. Rugby. That was a lot of a lot of your stories uh, end up or start off with with rugby. Yeah, yeah. So the he he was very much, but he as a biology master, he was you know it was he, he made his subject exciting. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly stimulated me in that that area. Um, chemistry was probably my second strongest, fortunately, because the games master used to come and get me and my pal out of double chemistry or triple chemistry on a Wednesday afternoon to go and play rugby for the first 15, even though we hadn't taken our O-levels yet. <laughs> um, so, so Dormouse, uh, totally misappropriately named because Dormouse as a 16 year old was already six foot four. Um, wow, to be a cat. Oh, absolutely. He was. He was very. He was quiet character, but incredibly mm-hmm. physically strong. He got a real physical presence to him. So Dormouse and I used to go off and play rugby on a on a Wednesday afternoon instead of triple chemistry, but that was okay because Mr. Butcher, my chemistry master, was an English uh, rugby union referee. So he saw the importance and need. So he saw the importance of letting Dormouse mm-hmm. and I go off and play rugby for the school. Um, on a Wednesday afternoon, instead of doing chemistry, mm-hmm. I wasn't a, a natural sportsman, but you were, and and you you actually did pretty well at the rugby, didn't you? 
I did, yeah. I, I mean, that that was probably why I uh, didn't do very much applied biology at the applied biology course. Because um, yeah. I used to play for a local club. I wouldn't get into college rugby. That was that was of no real interest to me. Um, instead, I got I played for a local club and um, represented them for a season, at Division One Yorkshire, uh, Yorkshire Division One, at wow. quite a respectable level. Um, yeah, yeah, rug, just rugby was. Uh, just one season because uh, my studies were suffering mm-hmm. and um, badly. And I was already on catch up when yeah. I went into year two. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think I ever really caught up, to be honest. So uh, so that was that was the end of that. But uh, no, I carried on when I went back to uh, I went back to Birmingham after college and um, rejoined the club that I'd originally started with in South Birmingham. who were just uh-huh. a few Oh, just a junior club. Mm. That's uh, Kings Norton. Kings Norton. Kings Norton. And um, everything went well there, did it? Swimmingly. <laughs> good, good, uh, good fun. Nice light games. What? Yeah, good, good light games. I think you've got to think back, uh, back in those days, and we're talking here the uh, the early eighties, the nineteen eighties. Medicine was at a very different level. And mm-hmm. uh, I think you're you're probably alluding to the events of the the day that we played the prison service. Yes, and you haven't mentioned this to me before, so I, I'm cheating a bit in on the answer. But um, so, <laughs> what, what happened, Mike? Um, did you <laughs> twist your ankle or something? Was it? Or uh... Uh, yeah, I think I think I twisted my ankle. I think yeah. I'd actually broken my neck three weeks previously. <laughs> Um, so you broke your neck and carried on playing rugby. Well, this was, as I say, medicine was very different back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember waking up one Sunday morning and I got pins and needles all down my left side and my left arm was weak. And so I went to see the GP mm-hmm. and he suggested that I should probably only train lightly on the Wednesday <laughs> um, because, because the team would probably need me on the Saturday. So I played the next Saturday. I trained lightly and mm. played the next Saturday. Um, that was quite a bruising game. I don't. I can't remember any of the, the those particular games, but I remember waking up the next Sunday morning, um, almost semi paralysed down my left side. So I went to see the GP, and of course, mm. you say we go and see the GP. Back in the day, you could actually just rock up to the GP's surgery and be seen. Yeah, and it was probably the one you'd seen for the last X number of years. Since since I was about two years old. Yeah. But what yeah. he suggested I should do is probably not train on Wednesday because it was the prison service on Saturday. Good advice. Good Great advice. advice. Yeah. And yeah. gradually the feeling came back and, and the arm was able to move. And then on the Saturday against the prison service, I'd scored a try. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so you weren't playing lightly. Barreled over the line and scored a try. And then I remember bending down to pick the ball up to take a line out. And that's all I remember until I was in the back of the ambulance. Wow, uh, I'd passed out. They said I sort of went silver green colour. And mm-hmm. um, they, they carted me off to the, the hospital. And uh, x-rays revealed that I'd broken the vertebral processes off C5 and C6. <sighs> Which, and it was those vertical processes that were actually impinging on the on the nerves to your uh, quite probably inner side. Quite probably. So I, I consider myself quite lucky. 
Yes. Hmm. It's an odd form of luck, isn't it? You're absolutely right. It could have been could have been game over, man. Totally. Hmm. Totally. So yeah. So so all this was going on and um, and you were still doing applied biology. No, I'd finished then. Oh, you finished by then? I'd finished so, by was it a good course? Did you manage to get anything out of it? Yeah, I think I did actually, as 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 it transpires. Mm. Um, and I, I sort of fondly re- refer to the course um, sometimes when I'm I'm privileged, in the privileged position of giving a lecture or teaching. And uh, what I what I talk about is I say, what were you doing in 1979? Because in 1979, on that course, I was working as a junior lab technician. And what were on the course? Yeah, whilst I was on the course, I was working as a junior lab technician, um, admittedly in an animal lab. Um, but I was involved in a study to assess the accuracy of, or the, the efficacy, could we use the colour of blood to accurately determine how much oxygen there was flowing in that blood? Yeah, which I guess would make some sort of sense just from a prima facie argument because mm-hmm. blood, we know, is brighter red when it's mm-hmm. oxygenated and a darker red when right. it's not. And we see that, don't we? We see arteries uh, are brighter and lighter than, uh, than veins. Yeah, that's right. So, so what did you do? Did, did you cut a load of arteries and, and look at how bright they were and compare it with colour charts and, and then cut some veins and... <laughs> How, how did you do it? How did we I'm, do I'm, it? I'm imagining this, this bloodbath. <laughs> but it, it wasn't far off a bloodbath. Um, how we did it, we weren't measuring the redness of the red stuff to start with. We were measuring the blueness of the blue stuff. Yeah, hang on then. Wait, you were doing this on royalty. royalty. <laughs> blue blood, yeah. Royalty and crabs. Well, okay, so <laughs> what we were measuring, we were measuring hemocyanin which is the, the oxygen carrier for crabs. And mm-hmm. if there's no oxygen, it's clear. And if it's oxygen-bound, it's blue. So a great, um, a great change. And this great is in, change. so uh, crabs have hemolymph, I think, don't they? Pretty much, yeah. Mm. yeah. So but the, the, the key to the experimentation, the reason that it works, was that crabs reach equilibrium with the water they're in. They're very close to equilibrium. Mm-hmm. So what we were able to do was by changing the oxygen concentration in the water, we could bring the crab into equilibrium, sample its blood, and measure the colour on a mass spectrophotometer. So we could see mm-hmm. where which wavelength of blue was giving us our maximal absorption. Refer that back to crab A, who was in mm-hmm. 20%, or who was in 40%, of oxygen and you were able to work out the graph to show that yes the color change is an accurate delineator of the amount of oxygen bound by heat but by the blood right that that sounds amazing and it sounds very similar to something we use in this day and age doesn't it but not with crabs it, it is exactly the base science behind what greater minds than i developed and we now use and take for granted known as the pulse oximeter. And that could be that little box that you put in your finger or, yep. or a huge, great uh, machine back in, uh, back in the, the early 90s, wasn't it? Back in the early 90s. Well, that, mm. that's pretty much where I moved on to. 
Um, not long after I'd left, left college, I ended up working for one of the companies that commercialized the new technology known as the pulse oximeter. So, and it, it's only it's only been recently that that I've actually made that link. I seem to have a natural affinity for this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Great interest in it, but I seem to know even before I started working for the company that that made it a commercial enterprise. It, it was almost as if I knew how it worked and why. And that was. Spooky that. It was back to the crabs. It was back to the crabs, yeah. <laughs> now you can see why I didn't do very well on the course, because it took me about 40 years to remember that that was probably why I knew how this worked. It's probably the break in your neck. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. most people, when uh, most people in the veteran profession, mm-hmm. when you say Mike Branson or Thames Medical, they say, oh, pulse oximetry guy. And I don't think... I don't think it's overstating it, really, to say that you brought pulse oximetry to the veterinary world. Um, no, no, I, I would say that's one of my, my claims to fame. I mean, in, in 1984, I think it was, um, I was very privileged and very lucky um, to be probably the first person anywhere in the world to use pulse oximetry in animal medicine. And what was your first subject? The, the, the patient or... The first patient was actually, um, was a lovely character uh, who went by the name of Arthur. Mm-hmm. And Arthur was London Zoo's premier exhibit. He was their model uh, exhibit. He was a lion. Wow. Hold, hold up your hands. Let me count your fingers. <laughs> okay. I got all ten. Gosh, you're the I got all ten. Yeah. Yeah, all ten. Brilliant. Yeah. There we go. Oh, so you've been working with <laughs> you've done some zoo work as well. I've done some zoo work. Yeah. yeah. So what was up with Arthur? Uh, Arthur was having his tooth done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, but it was it was uh it was just one of those coincidental things. Um working for the company I was working for, uh, we were heavily involved in safety and anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there was a big problem with deaths in the dental chair. And a lot of children were having general anesthesia and dying. Mm-hmm. So something like six or seven kids had died in the previous year, just yeah. having routine procedures, but under general anesthesia. And a chap I'd worked with on propofol trials, a guy called Professor Boswillow, lovely gentleman um, at Guy's Hospital, was tasked with setting out minimal monitoring standards for dental sedation and anaesthesia. So as an industry advisor who knew Prof Puzzwillow, they didn't want to set the guidelines using equipment or techniques that hadn't been invented yet. They needed a good baseline level to work from, and they'd develop from there. And so one of those technologies was pulse oximetry. Mm-hmm. And at one of the committee meetings, I was asked to present on pulse oximetry. So these committee meetings were, you know, grand affairs, very nice. And we'd have a lunch and uh, carry on chatting afterwards. And after I'd done my piece, we had lunch and I sat next to this chap. And he turned to me and he said, could I use one of those pulse oximeter things on one of my patients? 
Now, I had no idea. As far as I was concerned, I was surrounded by human dentists, mm-hmm. which I was. But the gentleman was a guy called Peter Cates, mm-hmm. And Peter had the first private dental practice anywhere in the UK. And his sideline was animal dentistry. Still is. He's still working. Is he still going? Uh, yeah, he's still going. He's still going. I'd speak to him very occasionally. Um, mm-hmm. but he's, he's still going. And uh, so I said, yeah, I don't see why not. And he went, Brilliant. Can I borrow it next Tuesday morning? Yes, okay. Brilliant. London Zoo. What? <laughs> 8.30. All right, okay. So Peter used to have this great big miner's torch on his head because operating lights in the back, back end of a, of a zoo, in the back cages, you need to see what you're doing. So he used to have this great big headlight blasted out and uh, of course we went along with the impression oh no problem we'll just clip it on its tongue except couldn't get to his tongue because there was a bloody great headlight shining all mother of sunlight directly on the probe which was ruining the detection of the ruin the detection of the, of the sensor absolutely right. and as any any vet people here will know you shine a bright light on the pulse oximeter probe pulse oximeter will fail safe it won't work mm-hmm. um so we're sort of casting around so you look at a lion's fingers and toes and just recoil in awe and shock <laughs> at the size <laughs> and the blackness of them um so we relied on sort of what i, I call one of the first rules of pulse oximetry to get it to work mm-hmm. which is to use a well perfused capillary bed okay yeah. with minimal pigmentation Right. That's accessible. There's something pink and accessible. Yeah, so we put it on his oh, finger. I see. Oh, no, no. No. Uh, ah. This is Willie, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was probably the first recorded use of pulse oximetry in veterinary medicine. But interestingly, it wasn't for another probably 10 years um, until we really started to make moves into the veterinary field. Mm. And that was partly because of propofol, which is a drug that I'd known from working with Prof. Willow when it was first introduced to human medicine. Partly due to... Uh, so it's, it's, again, sorry, it's a little sideline. There may be people listening who mm. don't know what propofol is or propofol. Um, it's, it's a milky white liquid. The milk of human kindness. Milk of, mag- of amnesia, isn't it? Milk of amnesia. <laughs> well, some people uh, will know it because, of course, it was the drug of choice of a particular pop star. It was. It was. Michael and, Jackson. And perfectly safe. Perfectly safe. Except it can kill you, of course, like any anaesthetic drug. Yeah. And that's something that Michael Jackson d- didn't really recognise. No. Well, yeah. He probably still doesn't recognise it. Probably not. No, he's blind yeah. to it now. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, and why was propofol so important in, uh, in, in highlighting the use of pulse oximetry? Right. That was introduced by the drug company very much on a safety ticket. It was considered to be a safer drug to induce anaesthesia than the, the current offerings. Well, the current offerings were thiopentone and methohexetal, uh, yep. weren't they? That's right. And they were not only... They had a very, very narrow therapeutic range, so very much there so. was a, a very tiny difference between awake, asleep, and dead. 
That's right. Dosing. Uh, right. And also, if you got them outside of the of the vein, so if you missed with your injection, then you cause huge amounts of tissue damage. Massive, particularly with thiopental. Yeah, very much so. I mean, thio had its uses, but it it, it was an old an old drug, of course. Um, mm. So safety and anesthesia. Um, there had been a report in Hall and Clark talking about safety and anesthesia and the need for monitoring. Mm -hmm. um, Hall and Clark being one of the definitive veterinary textbooks. It uh, is, and, and again another sidebar here. Of course, Kathy Clark, one of uh, one of our lecturers at the uh, the Royal Veterinary College, was the the, the eponymous uh, Clark. Mm -hmm. And we, we were talking before the uh, interview started. Before we started recording, we we're talking about uh, someone who reminded us of Margaret Rutherford. <laughs> Actually, Kathy Clark is one of those, isn't she? I put. Poor Kathy, I think long, long since um, uh, the same place as, as Michael Jackson, but um, she was batty as a fruitcake and, and lovely with it. Well, she was, apart from unless you were one of her students, because she was very direct. And she, oh, she was. She would expect you to know your stuff. You see, I, I was a swat. I knew my stuff, and so I was okay with her. You were okay. But, but if, she, if you didn't know your stuff in one of her tutorial groups, you'd tear them living crap out of you absolutely well i mean bless her i mean she was a lovely lady we, we became quite good friends and um as one of the sidelines in my early career um i trained and was training paramedics mm -hmm. and um i remember at one of the anesthesia meetings somebody stood up and challenged the audience a group of anesthetists on their ability to resuscitate a patient and mm -hmm. of course, everybody put their hands up. Yeah, they they were felt quite comfortable and confident resuscitating a dog or a cat or or attempting it to do a horse. And they were then challenged by this person. It wasn't me, um, as to whether they would know the first end as to what to do if one of their colleagues required resuscitation. And there was a, literally a deathly silence go across the across the audience. Yes. And this, this particular lady was quite outspoken and she sort of got drummed out the brownies within the next two years, but she'd already <laughs> caused the tsunami. And um, amongst the audience, Kathy was amongst the audience, um, several of them knew what I was also doing. So I was involved in veterinary anesthesia, but I was also involved in training paramedics. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Kathy approached me at lunch and said, would I be kind enough to run a CPR course at the Royal Veterinary College to teach her, some of the other lecturers and a group of students, how to do CPR on humans? So nice. I signed Kathy Clark off on her first aid at work course on <laughs> resuscitation. So, uh, oh, it's just a, an interesting aside, Gosh, I and many And many years later, in the equine block at college, I touched a live wire. My heart stopped, and I'd still be dead if it wasn't for Kathy Mayer. I'm lying about that. <laughs> but she, she, was, she was a lovely person, really batty, as I said, as a fruitcake, but really, really lovely, and yeah. knew her stuff. Yeah. So, here, yeah. so here we go. So we've got, this, yeah. we've got these three things happening. We've got a new drug being introduced to veterinary medicine, Publication of Hall and Clark, and I had just been asked by the Aga Khan's veterinary surgeon to teach him how to monitor anaesthetized horses. So anyway, I had I had built a multi-parameter monitor for the Aga Khan's veterinary surgeon, 
Peter Sarsted. Peter Sarsted, that's the man. Yeah. Which included Polsock Cemetery. Okay. And I took a photograph of this Polsock Cemetery on this horse, and it got ran in the Vet Times. And eight people picked it up mm. and gave me a call. And I systematically went around the country to meet these eight people. And uh, six of them wanted to laugh because they thought it was ludicrous that this level of technology would be used in animal medicine. Uh, one thought it was an amazing idea, but how much? And bear in mind, I've been working for the Aga Khan's veterinary surgeon where money wasn't that much of an issue. And the veterinary drug advisor for the drug company who put two and two together and went safe anesthesia, Hall and Clark, monitoring, and this guy's already monitoring animals. So he asked if I would get in touch, and I, he organised it with the local rep. Mm-hmm. Could I go and see a lady called uh, Polly Taylor at the Cambridge ah, University, yes. mm-hmm. who was, uh, still is, um, probably the ultimate guru in veterinary anaesthesia. And so I went down to meet uh, this, this Professor Taylor. I spent a morning in theatre with a whole load of people. I was getting quite agitated with the uh, sales rep because this was the last visit I was going to make on this, this topic before I buried it forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, when am I going to meet this, ta- this Dr. Taylor? He said, you've already met her. Because for me, a professor... Well, of course, he's got glasses on and he's a gentleman of a certain age and, and he speaks like mm. this and he's, he's a big character and he, he bluffs and blah, 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 doesn't he? But, of course, the person I'd met, I didn't distinguish between her and a student with, I think she had a flock of, flock of pink and purple hair and was a very bright, lively young lady. Incredibly, incredibly bright, incredibly charming. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And uh, so he told me to shut up. I'd already met her. And um, well, she was the lady that was asking you all the questions and then walked out. Right. Well, if you be quiet, I'll let you know that you've got to now build. Can you build six of these things? Because you've sold six to Cambridge University. So Cambridge University tasked me with setting up my first production line to build the first veterinary pulse oximeter. Wow. So that was that. And that was that. And then oh. I, can, I can chat to you for hours about all sorts of imagery because, <laughs> as, as well you know, we do. We do chat for hours about all sorts of imagery. Um, I, I, I fear we may lose some of our audience if we do that. I think you're but right. Suffice it to say, bring, um, uh, bring that forward now 25 years, and mm-hmm. there wouldn't be a single practice in the country that doesn't have, I think, uh, at least several puzzle oximeters mm. and routinely use it. Uh, yeah. And it has massively increased the, uh, the, the anaesthetic safety. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about the human field, but the, the veterinary field, before pulse oximetry was, was standard practice, uh, the anaesthetic deaths were something like one in less than 100. Mm. And now there's something like one in 750. I mean, I, I'm yeah. Plucking those figures out from, from memory, not quite thin, thin air, but certainly plucking them from thin hair. Yeah. And um, they, they, the, the benefits of pulse oximetry are 
are very difficult to overstate. Yes. We are tremendous. Absolutely. Uh, so that must have taken all your efforts. You couldn't have done anything else for forever then, really. You've just been <laughs> just been doing that. My goodness. So that's great. You you had your little stint of not being a fighter pilot and and, yep. and um, doing some rugby and then uh, uh, breaking your neck doing rugby. So clearly you'd have given up fast sports then very sensibly, very wisely, and just stuck yep. to, uh, to to doing passing cylinders. Well done for you. That's brilliant. Yeah, Brilliant. it wasn't Brilliant. quite that simple though, Julian. Oh, wasn't it? No, I'm afraid not. Oh, afraid not. Well, I had to replace the rugby with something. What, Tillywinks? What? Oh, no, I, 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 my parents introduced me to skiing at a yes. very young age. And um, I, I, I could probably be described as a competitive character. But you're not. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't storm out if I was losing at Monopoly. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm quite a competitive character, so um, I thought I'd, I'd put more effort into my skiing, and um, but I wasn't very good at slalom racing, so I took up downhill, okay. and we, obviously there the turns are even wider and, and, and longer. And yes, you've got some jumps thrown in there, but um, I crashed at the Val d'Isere downhill, and. Um, that was my first big event, and I crashed. But I crashed on the straight, which was really rather embarrassing. How so, did you crash? I can't remember. I can't remember. I just came out of one of the S-bends and ended up on my, on my head. Mm-hmm. So um, I figured that probably downhill wasn't for me, so I thought I'd better leave out the bends. Yeah. So I took up okay. speed skiing. Now, that's serious crap, isn't it? Well... Yeah, I mean, it's straight down, straight down the mm. hill. Um, it's normally a hill closely resembling a cliff. And <laughs> you, um, you you basically use all of the, the, the top of the mountain to get your speed up to go through a 100-metre timing trap near the bottom of the mountain. Right. right. And then, that- then you try and stop. Did you get that fast? But you didn't. Uh, yeah. Um, in in training, if we weren't doing over a hundred miles an hour, then we didn't consider it proper skiing. Hundred miles an hour, and that's that's wise for someone who's broken a neck. Do you know, Julian? I don't think I ever considered that. <laughs> no, no. Let's, <laughs> let's move. Let's move. The next fine. The next. Oh, no, the, the, the important fine. the important thing is uh, it, it, it sounds very glamorous. You, you're throwing yourself down these cliffs near vertical cliffs of snow and ice um, to go really, really fast. Mm. And but you you don't start at that. You don't just go up the mountain and do 100 miles an hour. You work up to it. So it's 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 a controlled thing. You know, it's a controlled risk. And it is, uh, I, have to, I have to say, actually, if um, if anyone's watching this, thinking I'll do that. You don't just point your skis downhill and go for it. You have to really know how to control those skis. And um, I'm a reasonable skier. Mike is an excellent skier. Um, I would not ever dream of doing what Mike has done. You to 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 control your speed, to control the skis, because your skis are wanting to do different things all the time. Absolutely, and that because you run on flat skis to get the maximum speed, you let the skis run. So there's no so, edge. Yeah, the skis will wander backwards and forwards, and sometimes 
you know, if you're really unlucky, one will come across and take the other one out. It just flaks yeah. across and you're on your head. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and we, uh, 100 miles an hour, that's, uh, that's going to hurt, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so whilst we were introducing pulse oximetry and, and venting pulse oximeters, I was also representing Great Britain um, in, uh, in speed skiing across, across Europe. Just one question. Mm-hmm. Do you get life insurance for your, for your business? <laughs> I didn't consider that either. <laughs> no, that, that, that wasn't really an option. Um, and I suppose, you know, Speed skiing has has got the reputation of an adrenaline sport. I mean, we were we were doing my personal best is 116 miles an hour. Um, wow. The world record at that time was 120 miles an hour. Um, so we we weren't far off. Although a wish is as good as a mile, you know. It's 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 that the guys today are doing mm. over 150 miles an hour. Oh, they really technology today they're getting up to 150 miles an hour which i mean for us the idea of going 200 kilometers an hour which was your 122 124 miles per hour that was our pipe dream yeah um and i achieved that once um but unfortunately that run didn't count which is why i haven't claimed it because i finished that run upside down on my head (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pointing the wrong direction so um, that's, that's yeah, the right. way to do it yeah I went, I went through the timing trap at 204 kilometers an hour and crashed so it didn't count well because you have to be in control at yes, all times you do and you I, do. Was I, deemed, I, I was deemed out of control mm. i argued I see it. that if I you argued went it. Your head. yeah <laughs> i argued it time is everything and and that was why after trying to make a comeback to get into the 1992 Olympics at Albeville, mm. I was a little bit upset because um, at the Italian World Cup the previous season, at the time it was set, the entry qualification for the Olympics was set on speed, mm-hmm. which I'd qualified for easily. And uh, I walked away from the Italian World Cup because the track avalanched and it was only going to be a slow race. So mm. there was no point in me staying it was a slow race i'd already gone significantly faster that year mm-hmm. and, and got my qualification and they decided they'd award points instead no and they awarded points and the uh because i'd walked away of course i didn't get any points from that race of course so you didn't have points to, to that's right we, we can't You've got it. We counted it back. And it was the equivalent, had I gone six one thousandths of a second faster on a previous race, I would have had enough points to qualify. So that's but I didn't. Uh, so I didn't qualify and I didn't go to the Olympics. Uh, <laughs> how frustrating. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Point zero zero six. Point zero. That's that's nothing, is it? Couple of centimeters, I think, about 120 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> couple of centimeters behind the, uh, the winner. Blimey, that's that's nothing at all. There we go. Still, at least it got speed out of your system. I'm pleased about that. So you didn't do anything fast again, and you just stuck to uh, playing tiddly winks or Scrabble. Scrabble's a nice game, isn't it? Yeah, Scrabble's a good game. Yeah, um, is it? Oh, yeah, apparently, I'm rubbish yeah. at Scrabble. I can't spell. I'm dyslexic. Scarble. 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 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that wasn't the end of my racing career. It, it wasn't? No. Oh, no. Oh, no, because because I've seen pictures of you on, mm-hmm. on a bike. Yep. And, and not just on a bike, but on a bike that looks pretty fast. Mm-hmm. With a helmet that's one of those helmets that you go so fast that it sort of flares out of the back. Mm-hmm. Salvador Dali of a helmet. Yeah. Uh, on a, on a, well, I can only call it a cycling pitch because I, I don't know the proper terms, but it's at an angle. Yeah. We know you for Mr. Clinton call it the velodrome. Now, were you seeing how, how slowly you could go while playing Scrabble? Well, it's funny you should say that. No, no I was I, I got into sprint racing, which is which is one against one. You were pretty good, weren't you? At what? Cycling. Not originally. Not originally. I wasn't originally. I no, I no, was not too, at all. Couldn't cycle at all I, with training wheels on. I was an <laughs> overweight. I was an overweight forty-year-old. Sorry, you were forty when you took up cycling. Yeah. Most people are 40 when they give up cycling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 40 now, that's it. I won't be using this old thing again. Yeah, no, I, I, I took up cycling when I was 40. Badly overweight 40-year-old. And the the cycling was uh, sort of an idea of my wife at the time um, because I used to use a bike in training for skiing. Right. And okay. she said, you used to enjoy riding your bike. Why don't you take mm-hmm. up cycling? And it might help she was you well aware, was she, that you didn't have health insurance? <laughs> I, I just, I just say that form, formulating the picture. You, you'd have yeah. to ask her that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no, that so that that's what started it. And I, mm. I joined the local club, Worthing Excelsior, and uh, used to ride out with them on a Sunday morning and just go out for a gentle tootle, wear me out. Mm-hmm. And uh, they used to run a time trial up and down the AE24 on a Thursday evening, I think it was, mm. um, in the summer. And everybody in the club used to go to the time trial. So I went to the time trial and had to go at a 10-mile time trial. Runs not far away from your practice. Mm. Um, and uh, got, got the bug for this. So I used to take it a bit more seriously. And one of my friends suggested that if I wanted to get good at time trialing, I should take up road racing, which is sort of like amateur Tour de France stuff. Mm -hmm. So I went along to Goodwood Motor Racing Circuit on a Tuesday evening, signed on the dotted line, signed on, and joined a peloton of 120 other keen, avid cyclists who, within the first mile, all rode off into the sunset and left me. Uh, so so i persevered at this and mm. uh, gradually i was as I, my fitness improved and my weight came down and i got more and more competitive um i found that i could uh i could keep up and not only could i keep up i could compete at the end of the race in the sprint and right so one of my pals suggested that it might be an idea for me to have a look at the velodrome and take up sprint racing Mm-hmm. And in my first event, which was the uh, National Masters, I finished seventh in my age group. Your first attempt? Yeah. So I then started to take sprint racing a bit more seriously mm. and put a bit more effort into it um, and trained hard and, and worked worked hard at it. 
spent a lot of time in the velodrome, um, ludicrous amounts of time, because um, sprint sprint racing is all or nothing. Mm. So a sprint race is three laps around the track. And how long's the track? Uh, Two hundred and fifty meters. Okay. And you start at stationary, and all that matters is is that you're ahead of your opponent when you cross the line. So when you talk about staying still or going slowly, that is part of a sprint race. And if you've seen it on the TV, you'll very often you'll see the riders will ride around at walking pace mm. and sometimes stop. Yes. What, they, what they want to do is they want to move their opponent into the front position so that they can take the benefit of the slipstream from the mm -hmm. lead rider just to nick past them in the last 10 metres. The rotters. The rotters, indeed. So it's all part of the tactics. So, so it's, it's as much a, a cerebral game as it is a, a physical. Yeah, very or, much so. Well, not quite as much, but yeah. No, no, even more so. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's psyching out your opponent. It's having tactics to, to beat your opponent live one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes three up races, so three riders all at the same time. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating stuff. It is. Yeah. And what what sort of speeds do do bikes get to? Um, coming off the banking, you can easily hit 45, 50 miles an hour. Wow. You have Got to work it. hard, but you you drop down this really steep banking, and you gain a hell of a lot of speed. <laughs> oh, I, I used to enjoy my sprint racing. Um, mm. Right up until it all got spoiled by, I know what you're going to say here. Yeah, Sir Chris Hoy. Mm, yeah, bastard. Sir Chris Hoy, the ultimate gentleman, mm, Olympic yeah. and world champion. Mm. And he just spoiled it for me. Yeah, rotter. If you're listening tonight, Chris, you're rotter. You <laughs> spoiled it, my mate Mike. Come on, come over here if you think you're hard enough, Chris. So, yeah. Chris. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I can say, don't, don't, you probably no, are. Bless him. No, I, could, I couldn't have wished for anything better. I, I was, um, I was at the, the British National Championships and uh, I drew Sir Chris Hoy in the first round, which was a mm. dream for me. And who, who better to write? It, it was a foregone conclusion. I, th I think there's a photograph of my wheel just ahead of his, except <laughs> that was at the start of the race. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only time I got anywhere near him. It's a foregone <laughs> conclusion I was going to get my ass whooped, mm. um, which I duly did. And uh, he, Chris Hoy is everything you see and would imagine him to be on the television. He is a consummate gentleman. Just a nice guy. He's just a really, he, really must nice be. guy. He always comes across as being a decent fella. He is. He's, he is. He's built like a brick shit house. And <laughs> but but uh, no, he is. He's the consummate gentleman. Um, yeah. But for me, where do you go from there? That's that's it, isn't it? That's the ultimate. Pretty much. Yeah, Come I've, I've been beaten by the current world and Olympic champion. Yeah. I'm not going to ask for a rematch because <laughs> the result would be a foregone no. conclusion. And no. I'd put a lot, I'd put a lot of work in to get to that level. Mm. And as you quite rightly said, you know, most people are retiring when they're forty. Um, I was close to fifty when I raced Chris Hoy. Um, really. So uh, yeah, so that was that was the beginning of the end. That's pretty good. That's pretty yeah. good going. Yeah, you've done pretty much everything and several times. And I know your your bike riding. We we mm -hmm. we touched on the speed 
part of it. But mm -hmm. actually, uh, I'm going to blow your trumpet now, if you don't mind, because over the course of, of a few years, you raised £35,000 for charity mm -hmm. by, uh, by cycling around the countryside, delivering mm -hmm. free education. Sort, sort of free. I, I sort gave, of free. I gave you, my time freely and the practice. Free for you. Yeah, free for me. Yeah. But the, the practices would um would would pay in effect pay me for the CPD that I was giving them. Mm. And all of that money went to charity. Yeah. Um, this is Tour de Vet. That's about. Tour de Vet. Tour de Vet. Yeah. We did we did four four Tour de Vets in the mm. end. Um uh, the first one was about 1,200 miles wow. over three and a half weeks. Um, second one wasn't much shorter than that. And third and fourth ones, we went all the way around Northern Ireland. And the, that was the last one. And the third one, we went all the way around Scotland, right the way around. Right the way around Scotland? Right the way around, including, um, uh, including Orkney mm. uh, and Harris. So we, I even went to the islands, didn't, didn't just limit it to the mainland. Yeah. Uh, Sky. Um, yeah, it was, wow. it was good fun. Good and fun. you were pulling a trailer behind you. I, did, I used a trailer for two of the uh, events, mm -hmm. and then I was convinced or, or talked into using uh, panniers. Okay. Because the thing, the thing with Tour de Vest, just riding a bike is, is relatively easy. Um, but the thing with Tour de Vet was we did it unsupported. So we carried everything we needed with us. And yes, we stayed at bed and breakfasts mm. and, and, and cheap hotels because our sponsors were, were very generous, but not that generous. Um, mm. But it was all done unsupported. So we carried with us what we needed. There, there was no, no team following behind with your luggage. And the... Nope. No, yeah, Tour de Vet, it was it was a lot of fun, and uh, we we met a lot of very nice people. Yeah. Um, it wasn't easy; it was hard. Um, you know, if you it, it, we we nicknamed it Tour de Wet uh, a couple of times <laughs> because although we went in the summer, somehow we seemed to manage to get the weeks where it always rained, and when mm -hmm. you're pulling on your wet lycra to go and ride another sixty or seventy miles to the next CPD session. It's it's a bit of a grind. It can be, it can be. And again, anyone from overseas listening in, um, don't be surprised if you come to England in the summer and you need an umbrella. Yeah, it's very um, green. It, it very, very green. Our, our green and fertile land. In fact, I heard someone from America on an interview a little while back. <coughs> yeah. uh, there was a film star of some sort, and they were saying, you know, why, why did you come over from Las Vegas to live in this country? You know, don't, don't, you, don't you miss the sun? And this guy said, hey, hey, no, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love I love the British summer. It's my favourite day of the whole year. <laughs> <laughs> Not far wrong. Not far wrong. <sighs> so, Mike, we, we, we've got a little bit more into, into the real Bramwell, haven't we, here? Mm -hmm. I think. Probably. Mm. So, hmm. I don't think we should leave it there, though, because... There's a lot more, isn't there? <laughs> if you this say is, so, this Julian. Is, this is the person who, at five years old, dandled on his mother's knee, said, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. Wasn't a fighter pilot, but has changed the face of veterinary anaesthesia uh, 
pretty much, I think, changed the face of, of English uh, speed skiing and made huge inroads to changing the face of how to survive broken necks in rugby and found some time to raise money for charity and do some bike riding. Do you feel you've made it? Because you met, you said earlier on that you failed your interview. That doesn't seem like a failure to me. I think... What, what's, what's the expression? Success... Here you go. Get, get your vomit bowl out. OK, I'm going to... Here we go. What is it? Success is a journey, not a destination. <laughs> so, do you regret any steps in your journey? No, I don't think so. Every journey is... Poss- possibly one. Oh, yes. Oh. Well, that's probably being too arrogant in front of the RAF selection panel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you hadn't been arrogant, you might have got in. Possibly. And then you may not have done your skiing and your bike riding, and we may not have pulse symmetry and... And we certainly wouldn't be sitting here talking utter bollocks every Wednesday night. <laughs> On Venry Rambling. <laughs> Which I very much enjoy and would miss. Yeah. So, would yeah, I know I've missed it? That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, quite, quite possibly, I think. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Is, is there anything... So this is this is the trial of your life, isn't it? We're, we're judging you on, on your... whether you've failed or not, and I think you haven't. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there anything else that you'd like to bring as evidence? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've, I've got so many more things that I want to do. And uh, it's it sort of like you reach, you reach your, your sort of pensionable age and you begin to think that uh, you should retire. And I don't know if I've got time to retire. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's a few things that I, a few more boxes I need to tick. Right. And a few more things I need to do um, before I can sort of hang up my spurs a little bit. I, 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 have I succeeded? I, I don't know that I've succeeded. I don't know that I've failed. You know, it's just... Uh, have you enjoyed the journey? Very much so. Well, it sounds to me like a success. So I'm going to raise a glass to you. <laughs> I'm raise a glass and say, Mike, I now know a little bit more about the the Brammers, the Mike Brampton. Thank you very much, Julian. That's my very best friend. May your and dog go with the, you. May your dog go with you. <laughs> Cheers, Julian. Cheers. Do I get to go and cut? Uh, no, I have to say it because I'm, I'm interviewing. So I say and what was it? Clip. Cut. 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 Cut and. There you go. I did. That's brilliant. That's probably why I do it on all the other episodes, isn't it? I know. I can't get it. To, uh, you make it sound so natural, but it's and 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 uh, uh, and cut, cut. That was it. and cut. There we go. There we go. Well, how was it for you, darling? <laughs> <laughs> it was quite interesting, actually. It's fascinating. It's 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 quite um, quite cathartic. It's it's interesting being on the other side. Mm. Not asking the questions and having to think mm. of the answers. Um, and so in that regard, it's it, it's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. It, it's probably the first time that I have shared so much in public. Mm. So there's a little bit of a challenge there. Um, yeah. But 
it, it's just a story. It's just a another story. And if if there's if there's anything I've learned from some of our amazing guests that we've had on, um, it is just a story. Mm. And even with some of the achievements that our guests have have had, which in my opinion eclipse anything that I've achieved, um, they'd say they'd do it again. And they'd say that anybody in their situation would have done exactly the same. Mm. And you just get on and do it. You know, it's, it's a, it's a human thing. I think. I think it is. And, and, um, and it's interesting. You brought up that it's the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, we, none of us really have control over that journey at several points mm. or various points rather. Um, we can, we can set a target, which more often than not is, uh, is out of our control anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's something to aim for. Uh, we're thrown off target for that. Mm-hmm. And we may then deviate completely. But actually, sometimes there's a Zen part to life, isn't there? Well, OK, I'll, I'll just see what happens now. Yeah. And other times there's a, no, I'm going to drag it back onto this at all costs. Yeah. And what's right for some people isn't right for everyone. Yeah, I mean, sure. I, uh, yeah, if I look back at um, if I look back at any of my careers, my sporting careers, um, I, I would I would love to have stood on the podium. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never did. Yeah. Um, but I enjoyed the process of of getting to those levels and I've enjoyed and loved the friendships and relationships that have developed over that time. Um, and some of the characters that I've met and either skied against or cycled against or skied with or cycled with, uh, played rugby with, um, and it's, it's been very rich and rewarding. And then if I switch that into work, uh, or can you really consider it work? If I, if I switch it into in, in, into sort of career-wise, mm. again, I've been very privileged and blessed to meet some amazing people and share ideas with them and be stimulated and challenged by their questions and and what they've achieved and what they're hoping to achieve. Um, I think the interesting thing there is that some of the interesting people, some of the amazing people, aren't actually amazing in themselves are they we, we, we've we've met some heroes mm-hmm. on this on this show has some heroes and their their story is amazing mm-hmm. but obviously they're not super superhuman they, they have no superpowers mm-hmm. or anything that they're, they're normal people who their journey has taken into an exceptional direction yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think again, again, everybody has a story. Mm. And I don't. <laughs> well, we'll find that out. <laughs> find that out in another episode of Veterinary Ramblings, <laughs> where Mike turns the tire, turns the tables, and interviews <laughs> Julian Hogue. and finds out that he doesn't actually have a story. He is literally the most boring person in the whole of history. Well, we'll find that out, won't we, Julian? <laughs> I, I think it's going to be considerably different to that. <laughs>